1: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Cognitive Science Show. This is episode nine of Transcendent Naturalism and of course I am here with my ongoing partner in all of these cog-size shows, Greg Uh, Enriquez, and um, I'm here with somebody else that many of you already know. He's been on this channel and uh, Brett and I have worked together. Um, I've been uh, tweeting and posting about his recent work. He's been doing Uh, integrating my work and Jordan Peterson's work and his work on mythology and the relevance realization of collective intelligence Um, and so that's Brett Anderson so uh, welcome Brett I'm going to turn things over to Greg and he is uh, just going to set the stage what's been happening in the past couple episodes and then he'll turn things over to Brett so welcome Greg
0: hey great great to be here Uh, super excited about today brent and i have not had uh the chance to have lots of conversations although his voice is in my head uh because i've been going through the intimations of a new worldview and enjoying that tremendously and looking forward to what you'll be sharing today uh, because i think it's really relevant uh for the kind of work that we're doing uh so what we are coming off of are two excellent sessions uh with brendan graham dempsey um he laid out his vision uh for emergence, uh, for the meaning meaning of meaning grounded in a metamodern spiritual worldview. He articulated sort of the evolution of complexification um, and sort of the religious significance of that, men in the broad term, and really laid out in different language but enormously similar overlapping structures, sort of the evolution of the integration of levels, Um, how we relate to that, how we create ritual in relationship to this, what kind of ways we might bring together our collective consciousness to afford strong transcendence. And I'm really looking forward to listening to you today talk about your angle on this. Um, I just gotta say the the excitement I experience when you're doing bridging from mythology into Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meanings work and John's work, Uh, as a clinical theoretical psychologist, it it brings joy to my heart and uh, it's lovely to have you here. So uh,
2: welcome, Brett. Thank you, Greg, and thank you, John, for having me. Um, Yeah, so for those, for people who aren't familiar with me, uh, I'm an evolutionary psychology PhD student at the University of New Mexico. Uh, My main area of research I do is on the diametric model of autism and psychosis, uh, which is the idea that autism and psychosis are, are cognitive and genetic opposites, but... Uh, my work on that got me uh, into relevance realization, and so John and I published this paper last year integrating uh, some of that work with, with John's work on relevance realization, and then I have this, uh, I have a substack where I write about uh, topics uh, from from mythology to the meaning crisis, complexity, cognitive science, uh, relevance realization, Jordan Peterson's work, and then my recent YouTube series uh, is kind of me putting everything that I've done up to this point together into uh, what is hope hopefully a relatively coherent uh, worldview that's called Intimations of a new Worldview. And so yeah, I've listened to the first four parts of this series. I think that your project here is really uh, interesting, and I think uh, the the work you've laid out is really uh, really helps to bring things together. Um, what I'd like to do here is just to introduce, and of course, this is something we've talked about before, John your podcast, but instead of going through, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not going to go through my whole intimations argument, but one thing that I, I think might be relevant to your project here is just the idea of self-organized criticality mm-hmm. and how this idea, just this scientific concept sort of acts as a linchpin for me, at least for me it does, it, it acts as a kind of linchpin uh, where there's all of these other uh, topics that are, that are related to it, that are scientifically related to it, and it has this strange quality where self-organized criticality emerged as a theory about, it emerged as a theory within, phys- within physics about the emergence of complexity in nature, but it also has this built-in value judgment because within biology it's understood, or at least the argument has been made, that criticality represents the optimal pattern of behavior for biological systems. So uh, so if you don't mind, I'm going to share my screen here and go through a few slides uh, just uh, trying to show how I think that this this idea is related to uh, your your concept of transcendent naturalism. So can you guys see my screen fine here? Yeah, excellent. cool. 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 Okay. Uh-huh. okay, so uh, just to make sure that I've got this right. So in the first episode, when you defined strong transcendence, you said that these are experiences that do not simply indicate psychological improvement, but they have significant epistemological oomph and ontological teeth to them. Yes. Uh, and so in order for an, an experience Experience to be strongly transcendent, it must really be disclosing important aspects of reality, right? It can't just be subjective, right? It has to connect us in some way to some important yeah, yeah. aspect of the objective world. And so here I want to go over some ideas that will suggest that the concept of self-organized criticality can help us to understand this. I think it can from a, from a naturalistic or a scientific perspective. So... So, and I know we've, you know, I'm just going to briefly go over some of this history. I know we've, you know, is probably uh, um, uh, preaching to the choir here. So, Herrbach was this physicist in the late 1980s and 90s trying to solve this problem of complexity. The problem can be stated very simply. Uh, the the laws of physics, the laws of nature, nature as we understand them, can be written down on a single sheet of paper. They're very simple and deterministic. And given these relatively simple and deterministic laws, why is it that the world we see around us is so interesting and complex? And so he um, he did a lot of work in the 80s and 90s trying to understand this problem. He published this book in 1996 called How Nature Works: The Science of Self-Organized Criticality. And it's more complicated than this than this, but just to simplify things a little bit, he basically said that you know he reasoned that complexity must emerge at the border between order and chaos. An ordered system is like a crystal. A crystal is not complex because when you know what one part of the system looks like, you know what the whole thing looks like. A gas is not complex for the same reason, but it's the opposite. Uh, it's it's uniform throughout and therefore it's not complex. Uh, complexity must emerge at this narrow window between order and chaos. And the question is, how is it that systems in nature self organize to that narrow window from the bottom up without any tuning from an outside agent through the, the interactions of the parts of the system, with their environment and self-organized criticality eventually failed as a general theory of complexity in nature, although it's not, it wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just incomplete, but, uh, but it has become very important within certain corners of biology and neuroscience and cognitive science uh, for a variety of reasons. So I'm not going to do the whole, and feel free to interrupt me anytime here, by the way, uh, but I'm not going to do the whole sort of argument uh, going out, you know, you know, Uh, laying out the scientific evidence for this, but these are just some propositions that we can extract from this literature, which is that complexity emerges at the border between order and chaos. At that border, there is a general process that occurs and its contours or its outline is the same at every level of analysis. So when you look at the molecular level of analysis, you see the same general process of complexification that you see at, um, uh, at organic levels of analysis. And that basically looks like competing interactions that create tension within the system uh, that leads to this critical point, this avalanche event. uh, And then out of the avalanche or after the avalanche event, there can can occur an integration, which is a higher level of complexity. And so uh, the argument has been made in the literature that biological systems function optimally at the border between order and chaos, which means that they function optimally when they are participating in that process by which complexity increases. Uh, and so that, that means that self-organized criticality has this strange property, or at least to me, it has a strange property of being a scientific concept with a built-in value judgment, because uh, the border between order and chaos is good in some sense. And there's nothing there's nothing good about being outside of that border if criticality is correct, right? So if that really does represent the optimal pattern of behavior, then there's a, there's a, a built-in value judgment with that scientific concept. So…
0: I'll just pause… Pop- I thought you there know. for just a second, Brett, just to make a linkage here in relationship to um, what some of what Brendan Graham-Dempsey was doing was building bridges uh, of his, his worldview world to uh, that of Baba Yazaran, who, who really basically articulated sort of a view of the universe as a learning system. Uh, and it, it learns through basically trial and error. It experiences sort of the edge of uncertainty. It assimilates It accommodates on that edge. Yes. Uh, it grows, and then it breaks, and then it has to reorganize itself in relation. Now, uh, Brendan didn't use the model of self-organizing criticality specifically, but the parallels, it's not even parallels. They're the same basic yes. process. So I just wanted, for folks listening in terms of the consistency, you're hearing, once again, another line that's pointing to a very, very similar uh, entity here or process.
1: Right. Yeah, so, I, I so,
0: the
2: yeah, Go ahead, John. Yeah.
1: yeah, I want to make a link, too, and then you can respond to both, uh, Brett. Um so I think uh, you, Brett knows this. I, I think Greg does too. Uh, in 2013, Leo Ferraro and I uh, published a paper on um, how you could map relevance realization onto self-organizing criticality. And then I did later work about how the insight processes, making use of Stefan and Dixon, the insight process of frame breaking and frame making, which are processes of sort of sped up relevance realization can also be understood in terms of uh, self-organizing criticality. So the connection also to... to Uh, relevance realization insight machinery is also quite tight in in a lot of ways
2: yeah i think so too um yeah i think the process that bobby azarian is describing and uh and i i I believe brendan dams brendan dempsey as well uh is the process that occurs at the border between order and chaos right that process of complexification that he's describing in in the romance of reality is the same as this as this general process of complexification um
1: so, Brett, yeah, do, you, do you also think? Uh, I mean, we we made the argument that uh, you know the integration maps onto Piagetting pie- assimilation, the yes. uh, and 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 the, uh, and the you know the um, the differentiation maps onto accommodation. Do you think yes. that you could understand? uh Piaget's notion of equilibration also uh, in terms of self-organizing criticality there's people talking about that in the literature too yes yeah
2: I 100% think that Piaget was picking up on that pattern yes right, uh, right. he understood it implicitly of course he didn't have the the, the physics language. yeah right of course but he understood it and I'm going to talk about that uh when I get to so I'm you know I'm going to go through uh, these five different aspects of, of worldviews. So Antaves Taves, uh, Taves is a psychologist who studies worldviews from an evolutionary perspective. And I think she has some really good work. And she's she's argued that these five questions all have to be either implicitly or explicitly addressed by any functional worldview. And that would be ontology, what is real? Uh, axiology, what should we be aiming at? What should our, our highest value be? Praxeology, what should we be doing in relation to that? Uh, epistemology, how do we know what's true, and cosmology, where do we come from and where are we going, and I think that self-organized criticality has implications for all of these, and so I'm just going to quickly sort of go through them, and yeah. um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's connected to relevance realization too. So uh, in terms of ontology, you know, Lee Smolin wrote this great book called The Life of the Cosmos back in the mid-90s, and he argued in that book that our newfound under- Understanding of complexity in nature was going to change our ontology about the world because uh, there is, in some sense, there is some sense in which nothing exists outside of a complex universe. Right? The 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 very um, notion of complexity, an explanation of complexity, is an explanation of how anything exists at all. In some sense, right? That's basically the implication of Smolin's argument, and so. Um, given that complexity emerges at the border between order and chaos, there is in some sense, there is some sense in which reality itself just emerges at the border between order and chaos. Uh, that process of complexification underlies the the emergence of novel phenomenon in nature. Um And then, in terms of axiology, so as I've said, uh, multiple authors in the literature have argued that criticality and that process that occurs at criticality represents the optimal pattern of behavior for biological systems. There's a bunch of different quotes you can pull out of the literature about this. Uh, one of these is from John Begg's recent book on criticality in the cortex, where he just suggests that um, uh, optimal information transmission occurs at, at criticality in the brain. And there are a variety of reasons for why this is the case. And there's good evidence. Or I wouldn't I wouldn't actually say that the evidence is overwhelming, but at this point, there's there's relatively good evidence that movement away from criticality is associated with all sorts of problems like Alzheimer's disease and so on.
1: That's interesting. Do you, do you think uh, you know, because I've been teaching this for quite a while, um, and, and as you said, um, it was never, it was always respectable, but um, at the border. Um, do, you, do you get a sense that it's, because I, re- I remember reading an article in 2018, I forget, I think it was by Jose et al., uh, but um, or, uh, arguing that um, there, there's a movement towards a, a consensus around this, that criticality is playing, could give us a general
2: framework for understanding what's going on in the brain. I mean, my reading of the literature is that that's the case. Now, of course, I'm not in that world in the neuroscience world yep. with the people literature, but yeah, my reading of the literature is that there's more research being done on this all the time, uh, and the controversies around it are, you know, being settled one by one, basically. Yep. And uh, and so, yes, I think that this is the the future in terms of understanding emergent properties of the brain. Uh, criticality provides a very Useful framework for understanding emergent properties in the brain, and I think that'll that'll continue to be the case. Right. Um, so, oh, oh, yeah, Stephan and Dixon, right. there they are. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so in terms of praxeology, right? I, I think that we can we can understand this in, in large part through the phenomenology of criticality, because uh, we have good reason to believe that insight, as you've talked about, insight emerges through criticality in the brain, or insight is a self organized critical phenomenon. That's yes. de- that's Stephan and Dixon. Uh, You have argued, John, with your colleagues that the flow state emerges at the border between order and chaos between boredom on the one hand and anxiety on the other, and it's associated with criticality. Uh, The psilocybin experience has been explicitly associated with criticality. Carhart-Harris and colleagues and then, you know, we would also, I would also argue that the the peak or the mystical experience that has been documented many times. Of course, we can't study this experimentally, but given what we know about the psilocybin experience, given what we know about insight and flow, uh, I think you can make a strong case that this yeah. is also a critical phenomenon that this is uh, associated with criticality. And I would argue that all of the above is true. All of that is true in large part because relevance realization occurs at criticality, right? Yeah. As you talked yeah. about, as as uh, you argued in that 2013 paper. Uh, criticality is the mechanism by which relevance realization is instantiated in the brain. Uh, and so the relevant praxeology here I would suggest would be to use your language, John, an ecology of practices designed to promote these manifestations of yes. criticality. We yes. know what they look like, we know what they yes. feel like. And, and, and now we can have a sort of scientific understanding of why it is that they they have this. Uh, they have this epistemological authority, right? And insight has that, you know, it has that. Uh, yep. I forget exactly what. Onto normativity, right? Yeah, that's yeah. That's yeah, Experience and all that. Well, that aren't that onto normativity is not necessarily an illusion, right? Because um, that that process that occurs at criticality is real, right? It's it's very real and it and uh, it has uh, real causal efficacy. And I'm not saying that it's always like. You know, we've talked about this before. I mean, there's dangers associated with psilocybin and dangers Good. associated with having certain kinds of insights, even. But nevertheless, it's still a necessary process. Uh, so, and then epistemology, you know, as you talked about.
0: Can we pause on that for just a second? Yeah, go ahead. Just like, uh, I'll go ahead and add. So, for me, behavioral investment theory then is a framework that grounds animal mindedness, which is basically. I I like to describe it as a weak neurocognitive functional view that John makes a strong neurocognitive functional view with recursive relevance. But the fundamental argument is that the nervous system is an investment value system. Okay, so what ought to we do, and I don't mean that ought in a moral sense, but what what ought to we do as animals is to seek a particular um, dynamic state uh, in relationship to our work effort expenditure. And that would be found, I argue that's found sort of on the complex edge of order and chaos. So the investment value structure is just another way uh, of delineating this point of tension uh, along those lines. So I just offer that as another point
1: of And I would offer a meta argument at this point. Um, I mean, it's not that all, of well, at some point we were all working independently, uh, but, uh, and other people, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of convergence towards this. Uh, from independent theoretical frameworks, uh, independent labs, independent uh, universities, independent researchers. Um, Now, that, of course, is not a a proof, uh, but as I've argued elsewhere, you get this convergence, and it seems to be tremendously theoretically fruitful. Uh, So it's both convergent and elegant. So this is becoming, I would argue, a
2: very plausible proposal, one that deserves to be taken very seriously. I think so, yeah. And and that's... Yeah, to me it's it's very interesting. We'll talk about you know Jordan Peterson's work here in a minute too, but just because it's also got that integration with his work, because he discovered this pattern totally independently of the criticality literature, totally yeah. independently of the cognitive science literature. And he discovered it basically through studying the the psychoanalysts and mythology and all this yeah. stuff, right? And so yeah. that's a that's a very strange integration of of ideas, but it, it all comes together, I think, really nicely. Um yeah. So, and then in terms of epistemology, right, so we've already talked about how insight, which obviously has epistemological implications, emerges at the border between order and chaos associated with self-organized criticality. Uh, Now, of course, there are, you know, a a lot of evidence I'm going to leave out here. I'm just going to basically state it. You know, I think that the left hemisphere, so we have have these two cerebral hemispheres, uh, the leading theory uh, within the scientific literature on the adaptationist you know, the leading adaptationist explanation for why we have two hemispheres is essentially that the left hemisphere is designed to uh, to function optimally in routine situations or yeah. highly precise or routine situations, and the right hemisphere functions to uh, in, in situations where we don't know what we're doing, but also keeps an eye on the periphery. Right, so we have this. Yeah. Uh, we have different attention styles associated with each hemisphere, and sure. basically the left hemisphere is, is is specialized for order and the right hemisphere for chaos. That's Elkhorn and Goldberg. He put forward that idea in the 1980s. Uh, more recently, there was a Scientific American paper published in 2009 uh, where these three animal researchers made the same case based on the animal research, uh, independently of Goldberg. At least they didn't cite him, so I assume it was independent. Um, so anyways, and then Piaget, of course, and we've already talked about this. I think that assimilation and accommodation line up perfectly with this. And when you you know, uh, read some of Piaget's work on this, I think that he was clearly picking up on the same pattern. As yep. we said, he didn't have the words yep. to, to to put it in, in the modern language. And then I would argue that Kuhn is essentially doing the same thing at a collective level. Uh, whatever the flaws were with Kuhn's book, I think that he was picking up on this very yeah. real pattern by which yeah. by which scientific theories evolve. Uh, this which is the same as um, you know the really the pattern that he that he outlined is the same as the structure of an insight it's just occurring on a collective level uh, where normal science is what you're doing within a paradigm which is within a frame you're working within a frame you have the anomalous information which disrupts the frame the descent into chaos the revolutionary uh, period of revolution and then the reemergence, right and that's something that given that it's associated with insight given that that it's uh, uh, that it has the same structure as the meta mythology and all that uh, we would assume, and of course, there's no way to experimentally do anything like this. But we would assume that that's associated with criticality as well at a collective level. Um, I think that's a I think that's a decent assumption to make. I think it's and-
1: I think it's reasonable. I mean, and and if you look at, um, you know, the the left hemisphere is, I, I did this with Ian McGilchrist, and I said I can't you map the left hemisphere onto well defined problems and the right hemisphere onto oh. ill defined problems and he he basically agreed with that. So uh, I think that you could also tie his work in yeah. uh, there. And I think the thing about Kuhn, right, is in normal science, you you don't you don't have much exploration of problem formulation. You have the explication. You're basically searching the search space that has been properly formulated. Whereas during the revolution and the paradigm shift, you're getting all this problem, you're getting massive problem reformulation. Um, and so um, I think that you can strengthen that argument. Or, or that I'm I'm strengthening that argument. I think sure. it's an even more uh, a powerful match. Um, and then and then of course, and you're going to get to this. This leads to sort of a, the the deeper question. You know, what's the through line between all of these? Right. Uh, so, but keep going. Yeah.
0: You know, sure. One of the things that maybe we can circle back to <laughs> is that I'd like to talk a little bit about is sort of the microscopic, macroscopic, maybe fractal of criticality, meaning like, okay, in my everyday world, I'm going to a grocery store. There's some criticality dynamics that are happening in the everyday world. Then there's these massive transformations, just like as you have on the graph down there. So there's some context of sort of everyday life where we're on some sort of edge of criticality, but we're also can create a zoom back and say, well, actually, major transitions happen through exactly the criticality kind of process that it. kuhn would be talking about i don't know if i'm being clear about that but just the dynamics between well criticality ev- in an everyday situation that's fairly routine still has criticality element and then there's major transformation elements too if well, that makes could,
1: sense. could i add to that just to, and then i'll let brett pick it up i mean so some of the work i've been doing around the proposal of the, con- of the cognitive continuum which okay. is at a, at, a, at a low level largely unconscious you see fluency Right. And we have all the evidence about fluency and fluency is as that is, is if you just merely repeat something, you don't get fluency effects. And if it's just chaotic, fluency has to have enough right I order started. and novelty in it in order for it mm-hmm. to catch. That's why the brain likes it. Right. It's a good yeah. heuristic because this yeah. is often indicating that it's optimal processing. And then there's lots of arguments, not just by me, Tobolinsky and Reber, that insight is a fluency spike in which fluency yeah. just goes up. And then we've got the argument that I've made that Brett t- and, you know, and and uh, Anna Hera, Bennett and Leo and I made that flow is an insight cascade, right? And then you've got the growing evidence, right, that you can get collective flow states between people and you can see the same things going on. And so I think I, I, that's not the complete argument because uh, and I, I, I think Brett has more to say about how that extends into the ontology but i think the thesis of the cognitive continuum goes a long way and it, it's supported by some of the criticality evidence that you that it shows up in in a scale invariant manner in the brain yeah. um and so the cognitive continuum and the fractal nature of this i think uh, they, they, they 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 form a, a strong argument for exactly what you're uh, you're talking about
0: that makes good sense i thought that was the case john but i wanted to highlight that that's, that's wonderful
2: yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And these, you know, this uh, in everyday life, let's say, you know, criticality is associated with power law distributions of avalanches. And so what you would see at criticality is uh, a huge number of very small transformations like this, and then occasionally a very large transformation, right? And so if you zoom in on the changes as they occur, you'll still see this structure even when you're, even when yeah. it's apparent graduate, right? Yeah. It's just apparent because you're not close enough. It's apparently gradual because you're not, you're not looking close enough, but when you, of course, when you have the large transformations, they're very obviously, um, very obviously non-gradual. Uh, right. I, think that's, I think that's basically how One of is. the
0: things maybe we can come back to when we sort of sum this up is sort of the, the, the macro, macroscopic,
2: Topic. sort of chirotic
0: criticality and see maybe if we can think about this frame in relationship to that as well. Uh, and I'll, I'll say more about that. But I, I, when you were talking earlier, and I saw some of the slides, that was a point I want to break up. But I'll let you continue, and then we can move into that. Perhaps
2: sounds good. Uh, okay. So okay. So I think that all. I think that criticality and and the general idea of complexity also has cosmological implications. Uh, I think that Terrence McKenna. So Terrence McKenna is one of these people who, in my opinion, it's great to listen to Terrence and never to take him too seriously. But occasionally, <laughs> occasionally he says really brilliant things. Uh, and I think I think that he was picking up on this this understanding of complexity a long time really before a lot of other people were. Uh, he was He was really on the frontier of a lot of uh, on a lot of things. And um you know he what he pointed out is that, well, this newfound understanding of complexity, uh, you know if it's the case that the universe is this complexity generating engine, uh, in some sense, right, and and maybe that's not how we want to conceptualize it, but it is the case that we've gone from the very simple to the very complex, and we are at the, you know, we are easily the most complex entities in the known universe, uh, and so we are, uh, we are manifestations of this process of complexity, and we are also participating in it when we are behaving optimally, uh, so when we are at that border between order and chaos, not only are we, not only is that the optimal pattern of behavior, but it also represents our meaningful participation in the ongoing Creation and complexification of everything. And as far as I'm concerned, that renders it, that, that gives it a kind of sacredness in some sense. Mm, yes, yes. It, it, it affords
1: sort of profound participatory knowing, not just representational knowing.
2: Yes.
0: Right. Yeah, this, is another really, this is another really interesting line of discussion that I would like, like to, to maybe, John, at some point tease out, maybe here, maybe later. And that is sort of like, how do we think about our complexification in relationship to the cosmos writ large. Uh, And what I mean by that is like, is this a unique historical line? Like I'll take the flip side and say, well, actually the universe at the matter level is still 99% hydrogen and helium and not very complex. And it's kind of dead and spaced out, (laughs) okay? Um, So one thing that's interesting to think about in terms of a cosmological view is, hey, and and this is really the romance of reality point, is like we want to think about this complexification as the story of the universe okay versus the story of us i guess i would say uh and should we make that distinction what does that mean i think that's an interesting sort of at least mythos um, or or broad axiological reflection
1: well but I, I think i think part of what uh an argument i've been forming around that question is um is about this notion right of alethetic truth disclosure Um, In terms of how things are spaced out, as you put it very well, we are we are insignificant ontologically. But in terms of the capacities of the universe to produce properties, we are apex and we are really, really, in that sense, ontologically privileged. Um, What we basically prove is that the universe can make moral agents, which is like you wouldn't have known that. You know, you know, five billion years ago, or something like that. Uh, so, like, if you shift from a quantitative ontological analysis into a qualitative, you say, but wait, and and, and you know, um, and that gives us a, that gives us a, a, an important symbolic role. Where I don't mean symbol as just a med- mental ornament. I mean, we are icons. We disclose properties of the universe and disclose depths of it that are not disclosable anywhere else. And therefore there is an onto, suns piled on top of suns don't in- in- don't introduce the same difference as one mind
2: does uh, to the universe qualitatively. Yeah, probably. And I think that's essentially the same thing. I mean, that's what complexity is. It's novelty, right? It's, it's sure. we, you know, we are at the pinnacle of novelty uh, in the universe. and so It's intelligible in- novelty though. Intelligible. Right? Yeah, sure. yeah, that's what's important. Yeah, uh, agreed. Okay, so, and then, you know, I, in my opinion, um, because we have this uh, capacity for cultural evolution and, and the capacity for cultural evolution means that tradition in the past has in a kind of epistemological authority for us and it should. And that means that there is something that's always missing, in my opinion, from a worldview that doesn't connect us meaningfully to the past and, the, and that doesn't connect us meaningfully to our traditions. Uh, and I think that Jordan Peterson uh, did a beautiful job in Maps of Meaning of connecting this these ideas to mythology, and of course, he didn't use criticality. He wasn't talking about criticality. He didn't know anything about that. Uh, but what he showed in Maps of Meaning is that the mythological hero figure or the pattern that's represented by the mythological hero figure emerges at the border between order and chaos or that the hero stands at the border between order and chaos uh, and that that process that occurs at that border is essentially the same as the process that occurs at the border between order and chaos and nature. It's this uh, descent into chaos and reemergence into a higher level of complexity. And he shows how this how this manifests in different mythological narratives, whether that's Horus in Egypt or the Buddha or Marduk in Babylon or Jesus Christ in our own culture. And, and the, myth, the meta-mythology, as described by Jordan Peterson, uh, has characteristics indicating, to my mind, that it is essentially the same as the process that characterizes relevance realization. Uh, it occurs at the border between order and chaos. It has the same basic structure as an insight. Uh, and it's uh, and it's described by Peterson explicitly as the process by which we think he said, determine the motivational relevance of novel stimuli. Well, right. that's just relevance realization, right? Uh, when we're when we're presented with some anomaly, we have to categorize that anomaly in terms of its implications for how we should act in the world. Uh, that's what the meta is for, essentially that that process of dissolution and reintegration. Um, and so this this for me uh, this is really important because it means that you know what we're discovering in this this worldview is not something that. Uh, that radically disconnects us from our past or disconnects us from our traditions, Uh, we are participating in the same process that our ancestors were. Our ancestors were trying to, at least implicitly, uh, trying to describe in a variety of ways through narrative or ritual or whatever it may be, Something like the optimal pattern of behavior, what you might call interesting or admirable behaviors, right? We've been trying to distill, right, the general pattern underlying what makes somebody admirable, right? It's something like that, and we've we've gotten to this uh, this general pattern of the meta mythology, and so there's that. And um, you know, I won't go through this in detail. This is something I, I go through in in some detail in part two of my of my series of videos. Uh, but Jordan, you know, this also. Connects us to our phenomenology as well because Jordan Peterson argues that our phenomenology uh, is characterized by uh, uh, by experiences where we know what we're doing, right? Essentially, order punctuated by by anomalies that uh, that disrupt that order and that that occurs. Um, he he implied in some somewhere in maps of meaning that it occurs in a power law distribution. He didn't call it a power law distribution, but many small disruptions and occasionally a large disruption um he uses nested language
1: he uses the language of nesting quite a bit or he he used to yes
2: yeah he does in maps of meaning it's it's a it's a nested hierarchy and the stuff at the bottom of the hierarchy is, is sort of constantly changing while the stuff at the top is a lot more stable uh but when the stuff at the top does change it requires everything that's nested inside of that of whatever's at the top right uh it requires everything that's nested inside of that to to change as well and so that's a huge amount of entropy that's um that's generated by that Okay, and then uh, one more thing I want to just mention here is that criticality has been an important concept within the scientific study of consciousness, so research within global workspace theory, integrated information theory, the cognitive science of insight, the cognitive science underlying psilocybin have all converged on this idea uh, that there is some relationship between self-organized criticality and conscious experience, that experience emerges at the border between order and chaos in the brain. If you move people away from that border through sedatives, they lose consciousness. Um, and so what I would suggest, you know, just given that we have this convergence uh, within different theories of consciousness, is that there's very likely something very real and important about that pattern, given that we see it within integrated information theory, global workspace theory. I know that you've you've talked about this in your work, John. and um, and so, so we have multiple frameworks indicating that consciousness emerges at the border between order and chaos. and yeah, so I think that this idea of criticality, it, it for me at least, it has served as this kind of linchpin. It, it connects our ontology uh, through statistical physics and consciousness research to, uh, to our phenomenology, to our experience in the world through the study of insight, the flow state psilocybin, uh, to our epistemology through Piaget and Kuhn and insight, and our cosmology as well. And so uh, the experiences associated with criticality, insight, flow, the peak experience, uh, I would argue that these do not only indicate psychological improvement, although they often do that, um, but they also they really do have significant epistemological and ontological implications. And these experiences indicate, properly understood, they they are indications that we are participating in a pro, in a process that is scientifically understood as biologically and psychologically optimal. Uh, but that process is equally our participation in the process that that underlies the the ongoing creation and complexification of everything. So it's uh, ontologically grounded as well, and uh, because this, because it, you know, it, it lines up very nicely with the meta mythology. It links us to our past as well, and so that's kind of how I would, you know, connect criticality to this idea of transcendent naturalism. Uh, I think that's pretty much all I had, all I had to say about it. But I'm, I'm curious about how that sort of fits into into your guys's worldview and and uh, how you would make sense of that given what you've talked about so far.
1: So I have, a, I have a couple of questions off about. Yeah. Uh, the first is, uh, we're going back to the, the to the myth. you know, um, t- I've had talks with Jonathan Pajot and other people, published three papers with Dan Chiappe on the collective intelligence of distributed cognition, and, you know, I cite the work of Hole and others in uh, the talk I gave at Greg's Consilience Conference, you know, proving that uh, a- a higher levels can have causal powers not reducible to the summation of the calls the powers of the lower level and a lot sort of thing and and basically the idea is there's a we agency that has a collective intelligence that's instantiated in distributed cognition and it can solve problems um, largely problems dealing with hyper objects that individual can't solve like running an airline doing science, tracking global warming um, and so what they what it does is Right, you have you have these ways of coordinating distributed labor and uh, coordinating uh, distributed cognition, um, so that you can grok and solve problems that individual cognition can't solve. And then, um, and then you know, there's been discussions around, and I I, I do practice, uh, you know, with other people have helped to create design practices that try to get people. to realize this and, and, and independently this has been happening lots of there's lots of discussion about the we space and yeah. practices that bring out the we space uh, so again a lot i'm just very quickly a lot of convergence arguments onto to this idea um the fact that you know and it maps onto older ideas by Durkheim about when we were talking about spirits we were talking about the intelligence of you know the collective intelligence of distributed cognition um so would you say that when we're looking at the meta meaning sorry the meta myth taking place at the meta meaning level that we're basically seeing um we're getting a window into the relevance realization that is the collective intelligence of distributed cognition and if so what hyper problems hyper object-based problems is it wrestling with? Do you think is that a fair,
2: first of all is that a fair question? Uh, yes, I think it's a fair question. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to answer it directly. I'm going to. I think I might indirectly answer it because there is something I want to point out about the meta mythology in relation to collective intelligence. And then uh, I guess I'd be curious to know how this is relevant to, to yeah, what yeah. you're thinking about. Okay, I just wanted to, to point this out. So the the meta mythology is largely describing, in some sense, part of what it's doing is describing the relationship between the individual and the group in relation to solving collective problems. Because Jordan would make the case, and I, I think I would make the case too, that there's something that groups of people cannot do, uh, which is that they can't really respond to anomalies. Um, and and the reason why is that groups are fundamentally conservative in some sense, that the group is defined as a group by the boundaries of the group. And those boundaries, uh, um, can take many different forms, right, so they might take the form of a worldview that is involved, you know, a religion essentially is a boundary that defines a group, but within science, we have we have groups that define, we have boundaries that define groups of science, scientists as well, and those boundaries, uh, when they are violated in some sense, um, it's it's not clear to me that groups can respond to those violations as a group, And so what the mythology is doing in some sense is describing this tension between the fact that individuals experience anomalies, and then they have to update the group in the face of those anomalies. But there's a problem with that because there's a tension between the need for the group to be conservative, because built into the logic of, of cultural evolution is this conservative impulse. We blindly follow tradition, and there's a good reason that we blindly follow tradition. Uh, because the traditions that have evolved over many thousands of years are often extremely functional, uh, and they work for reasons that we cannot consciously understand. Uh, so there's multiple examples of this in the literature, right? So one of the simple examples is just manioc processing. So there's this plant that lots of um, lots of groups eat in South America uh, that requires a complex processing uh, procedure to detoxify the plant. And the groups that engage in this complex detoxifying procedure, if you ask them why they do it, they don't. Really know that they're detoxifying the plant. They just say basically something along the lines of, "Well, this is all this is the way we've always done it. This is how a group does it." Uh, something similar occurs. Um, another common example in the literature are these um, water temple water temples in Bali that are used in agriculture to uh, to direct the flow of irrigation. Uh, they've been used for for hundreds of years, and Uh, In the 1970s, the government came along and said, you know, we're going to implement a scientific way of doing agriculture, and it actually turned out to be terrible and it turns out that the old traditional way of doing the the irrigation worked for reasons that nobody could really understand. My point here is just to say that sometimes blind adherence to tradition is useful and necessary, but that creates a tension between the the problem that occurs when an anomaly disrupts When an anomaly occurs that makes the tradition no longer functional, then you have this this clash between those people on the one side who are adherents of the tradition and the clash between the person or the maybe a a group of people who perceive the anomaly and perceive that update is necessary. And so um, and so when we're talking about collective intelligence, it's not clear to me how to conceptualize it, because I'm not sure that collectives have the same kind of intelligence as individuals do. Uh, it's not clear to me. So an insight, let's say, looks very different at the collective level than it does at the individual level, I think. Um, Because at the individual level, right, it's a a disintegration of your, your, let's say, hierarchy of beliefs and values, whatever that may be. It's a disintegration of your own individual hierarchy of beliefs and values. And at the collective level, it manifests, I I would argue, as an individual... um, pointing out some anomaly to the group, whether that's the revolutionary scientist or the, you know, whatever, the religious leader, the, the shaman or whatever it may be, uh, and that 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 manifests as a kind of group dissolution. Um, I guess I'm just curious, like. You well, know, I can you... apply to that if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. please do. Yeah. Um,
1: so. Um, I, I worry here a little bit about about uh, Jordan's emphasis on individualism. Um, uh, so. I, I think what happens is analogous to what we've already talked about. Uh, we have two groups, and this is very much like the left and the right hemisphere, and one group usually at the level of collective uh, insight uh, represents um, the wider attention, um, and, and, and they represent a reorientation, uh, a reproblem problem formulation, and they're in conflict, and it can just break down, but if it's Creative tension, if it's opponent processing, if it was democracy genuinely working, um, then right are in relationship to um, another group that represents, like you say, order, the tradition, um, and um, they can uh, do opponent processing. Just and, and again, uh, you know, the left and right hemisphere are collections. Their collections of neurons, right, that are, uh, because a lot of individual anomaly is wasteful, uh, predictive processing. A lot of it shouldn't be paid attention to. I think it has to get to a certain critical mass before, uh, and I I use that deliberately, uh, a critical mass before it can introduce criticality uh, into the system. Um, and, And so the reason why I say this is because I think you can make a very good case that you see this kind of move in science and democracy. I've been arguing that democracy, when it properly functions as opponent processing, between the left that emphasizes subject that we're subject to fate and we're finite animals and we need compassion, and the right saying, yes, but we're not just animals and we're called to virtue and responsibility. When democracy works right, those two groups seeing each other as the best way to self-correct, then you get what democracies have been capable of doing, which is you know, very rapidly reorganizing society and culture uh, when it's needed, but also stabilizing culture when things are running fairly smoothly. So uh, that would be my pushback. Um, Now, where I agree with you, I think, but you see this also within uh, all of this is uh, we shouldn't be talking about collective intelligence just as if it's a top-down process, like predictive processing, like everything else. There of course, as you're and you're right. There's there there has to be stuff um, bottom up coming from the individuals, um, and so I, I I might I I guess I could agree with there's opponent processing between like the gestalt and the feature level between the collective level and the individuals, but I'm not quite uh, for the reasons I've articulated happy with talking about that as sort of the individual versus uh, the collective. Um, i th- I don't, yeah, i I well, I've given you the reasons why I'm suspicious of that and how I think i I would propose how we could negotiate between us how we could land that
2: well, let me ask you this uh, in relation to that. so you you talked about neurons being integrated uh, i would I would argue that people are not integrated in the same way that neurons are, and that that that's why individuals are conscious, but groups are not, right? And so, uh and and i'm i'm curious i mean i i assume you would agree but i don't want to assume any so would you agree that groups of people are not conscious right i do
1: agree i do agree that they have zombie agency they have what this is what it's called in the literature um and i think that has to do i, I think you're alluding to this most people argue that has to do with sort of the density and the speed of
2: connection things like that sure i mean my 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 contention is that consciousness has a role to play, that consciousness has real causal power, and that it has something to do with our capacity to Ah, ah. (laughs) okay, this is a good argument, because I
1: I agree. I think most of the evidence about the link between consciousness and relevance realization that says consciousness is basically about dealing with situations that are ill-defined, complex, novel. And then you're saying what individuals possess consciousness so they have specific access to that that the collective doesn't have do i understand your ar- argument correctly? That's essentially,
2: that's essentially yes okay
1: i think that part of the argument I, I can agree with uh very much um so i think the degree to which individuals possess consciousness and the group doesn't individuals um, have a functionality as individuals um i don't know if they shift the collective as individuals that's what i'm that's what i'm arguing back mm-hmm. um, i think they have to I think what you see happening is you generally see right, and this this is the problematic within collective intelligence. You see, right, a polarity form, and that can either go become opponent processing, or it can degenerate into polarization, like what's happening in the United States, and then the system breaks down in a powerful way.
0: So here's one of the things that I was thinking about. And you can think about this like, well, are these a collection of individuals or is this an emerging collective? um intelligence and what would be sort of the difference between them. Uh, so one thought, where I'm going in relationship with this at the macro macro level, to bring it back to a point I was making earlier, was, hey, can we frame where we are? I like to frame where we are at the sort of the fifth joint point, okay? So in terms of criticality of our macro level scenario, as the emergence of the digital global landscape, okay, and AI and our interface with that, that's, cha- that's created a lot of criticality. And we, we need to use the order chaos framework for that. And indeed, we see that in relationship to say the third attractor idea. So the third attractor idea is that we need to sail through uh, this time period managing the chaos that may emerge on one level and the totalitarian order control on the other. And develop an adaptive way of living between order and chaos, and organize now. Now, as we become conscious of that and engage in dialogue and engage in collective intelligence along those lines, like where is the individual learning? Where's the is the culture learning? What's the collective intelligence, and how do we frame that? Um, I just throw that out there and see where you guys land in terms of like what is collective, what's individual in relationship to that moment of criticality. Does that make sense? But, but
1: I, yeah, I was going to lean on that. I I, I was conceding. You know, respectfully, Uh, I think Brett made a good point about um, consciousness having a role. But I think I would counter, and I I acknowledge that. But I would say language has a big uh, role in that, and and there is no private language. Wittgenstein, language is inherently shared, right? And and no one person runs the language. No one person modifies the language. It evolves collectively. And so I see, uh, I, I see, like each the collective and the individual have powerful functions that do amazing things. And I, I, and I I would put it to you that I do think uh, like rituals, right. So I I, I'm doing work now on ritual knowing when you, yeah, we've always done it this way. No, you haven't actually, right. If you actually study rituals at each generation, they'll say, we've always done it this way, but across time, that's false. The rituals Mm -hmm. evolve. The language. This is how we've always spoken. No, it's not. That's why you can't read Shakespeare, right? So there is evolution, there is innovation, there is something like insight. I and I, I. So, but I think you're right. There is a. I'm trying to. I'm trying to give both here, right? I think you're right. I think there's a special function, and I think you're right to point that out that consciousness has uh, for the way it can, you know, detect things in the environment. That collective intelligence can't because it lacks consciousness but i think the reverse is also the case i think that the collective intelligence using language and using other things can detect things hyper objects i can't see evolution i can't see global warming right Uh, but science can right and so that's how i would respond
2: sure yeah so it's it's really hard to i think get the right language down when we're talking about these things because i you know what i would say is that it's something like you know when when an accountant notices an accounting error right well that's that's them playing that role of noticing the anomaly and reporting it to the group and all that okay and that's on a that's at a, a relatively small level of analysis when darwin noticed uh, the, you know, variation and selection, right? When he picked up on that pattern, well, he was also picking up on an, anom- an anomaly. It just so happens that that anomaly was way more fundamental to our culture, or right? it, it it violated the most, you know, very fundamental assumptions of our culture. Now, Darwin couldn't have done what he did without Malthus and, and other people, right? In, and in, language,
1: by the way, because he,
2: right? he had to keep track as he was on the voyage
1: of, right, of the Beagle. So he's also linking various instances of Darwin together into a
2: collective intelligence across time, through language right so but of course darwin you know even though i think we can now look back on it and say that evolution seems relatively at least you know i would say relative you know evolution seems relatively obvious uh of course that was an anomaly that it took I, our I, yeah i agree i agree yes
1: yeah I, I, well I, I so i maybe maybe we could move on i think we, we we've got to a point where there's uh there's there's important things to be said on both side of uh, of, oh, yeah. of this contention um, we're both acknowledging that each other points are legitimate. So this sounds more like a work in progress. And so to answer you, Greg, um, I think we need we need to do this kind of work that's coming up in this. And one of the valuable things that uh, Brett's formulation has done is call this question or a problem uh, in a positive sense to the fore and addressing what you're talking about. I think requires. Um further explication elucidation about just this bottom up top down thing we're talking about here yeah. because in the end, um, Greg and also Brett, I mean, I think this goes to the broader argument where I'm making use of other people that it's not just emergence up, it's also emanation yeah. down. it's not just causation up, it's constraint down. and I think we're both sort of converging on that when we're talking about this and the meta right now is I know that's not completely satisfactory, Greg. But is that at least pro tem?
0: Yes, I agree. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, Brett, can I ask you another question?
2: Are 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 you okay with leaving it at, at that state between us right yeah, I now? Think that's, I think that's good. I think we've we've made our cases, and I think we're we're basically. I think we're pretty much on the same page. But yeah, maybe yeah. we're coming at it with a different emphasis. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this one is a is a little bit more technical,
1: um, and and it's something I've been reflecting on. So, you know, earlier on, uh, RR was integrated with self-organizing criticality, also small world network, because those two loop on each other, right? If you fire as self-organizing criticality, you wire as a small world network and vice versa, right? And so it's that bigger. uh, And and by the way, small world networks do not only form between neurons, they form between many things in the environment as well. So the the correspondence doesn't break down. Um, And, you know and tying in relevance realization to that, right? And then, of course, we've been, right, and and you were the initiator of this, for which I'm forever grateful, and I've, I've been putting more and more thought into uh, explicating the integration between relevance realization, predictive processing. I won't go into that right now, but I do want to talk to you about that, by the way, because um, I've been talking to Mark about it, and he thinks this is a really good way of uh, getting clearer about how the two are so interdependent. Uh, but how do you see the self organizing criticality and you know the self organizing criticality small world network and the rrpp uh, integrations coming together uh, do you have any thoughts about that and if you if you haven't turned your mind to it that's fine i'm just wondering if you've turned your mind to it and if you like do you think that if we were actually looking at the dynamics of a predictive processing network we would start to see uh fractal self-organizing criticality between the layers of the predictive processing
2: network? Like, what do you think? Oh, that, that is what I think, but I mean, I, I have no, you know, uh, I have no real way of, of convincing anybody of that at the moment, I guess, you know, the, the problem for me in some sense is that I don't understand the math of the free energy principle. And I really wish I did uh, because apparently within, you know, it, apparently that idea is essentially built into the the math of the free energy principle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh optimality occurs at criticality and, and that um at criticality you get what they call these self-organized instabilities which occur you know they uh i don't think they call it a fractal uh there was a paper by friston and a bunch of other people i think in maybe 2011 or something where they talk about self-organized instabilities as being uh and, and they associate oh, yeah, and, with that and, with- and kelso's been talking about metastability along the same lines yeah Well, apparently at the very lowest levels of perception, at the fundamental, you know, fundamental levels of perception, we have a process that's going on that they call self-organized instability. But as best I can tell is this, you know, um, you have little increases in entropy and and reemergences, even at very, even at very basic level. Right, right, right. We see this fractal of what, what emerges as an insight at higher level what we might call higher levels of a cognition well that same process is going on at very low, low levels very, right. very fundamental perception as well as uh, what it looks like and that idea is essentially built into the the free energy principle which i don't understand so i can't you know i can't comment on that uh, or i can't you know pass judgment on that uh, but but yeah i mean i do think it does um and you know that all this stuff manifests um well, it would it help being. to
1: explain why we're getting converging evidence for why the brain seems to be organized as nested small world networks like yeah. why why that like yeah. and you want a theoretical connection between that and the predictive processing framework right uh, none of their models typically look like small world networks but the brain clearly is and so I think you've got at least you know the beginnings of an argument like well here's a plausible reason why the brain' arc- architecture is this way its functionality is this way and then you you could you you get that by integrating the self-organizing criticality into the predictive processing framework i like at least you can make a case for making the hypothesis plausible because it carries explanatory power
2: yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense um you know it also makes sense in light of the you know the the autism schizotypy continuum stuff as, you know, the, the people on the autistic side are essentially it's a specialization for order. It's it's yeah. all of those trade-offs that are associated with relevance realization. They're tilted towards the side of efficiency and and special, yeah. specializing for predictable situations and the opposite on the schizotypy side. And so, uh, and we see that, and I, I suspect we would see that, you know, that, that uh, play out in collective relevance realization as well yes. in terms of yeah. the dynamics of the group and the interactions between these different perceptual styles. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, uh, all of that stuff, uh, it, it fits very nicely together, I think.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Um, I think that's very, uh, th- that's very encouraging. Um, I'm hoping we can do some more work towards that. So I wanted to ask you one more thing and then I'll let Greg ask some questions. I'm sorry, your this work is so, I find your work just so ah, wonderful, right? Uh, just like it's, um, um, uh, and you 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 just you had the slide there and you made one sentence about it uh, about and i think this is right the sacred or this accounts for our experience of the sacred you said something along those lines i hope i'm not misquoting you yes, and i w- sure. i want you to come back because you know i've been i've been advancing the argument that you know this is basically a, a, you know not this is very very analogous similar to mappable onto late neoplatonic ontology, right, Um, uh, and uh, emergence, emanation. You know, uh, another myth is, you know, the Republic. Socrates goes down to Piraeus, and then he comes up and out. We go in the cave, and then we go out, and then we come back down into the cave. Like, all of this is, you know, the myth is there, and the thinking is there, and you've got this massive philosophical framework all built around intelligibility. So there's two questions I have. Um, one is Brendan did a lot of work integrating RR and some of the work that uh, Kolchinsky and Will Pair, you know, the no free lunch guy, uh, no free lunch theorem guy, you know, of how we can get technical information to be meaningful uh, using sort of RR uh, understanding. And it maps very well onto their proposals, you know, about causal relevance to an auto, basically an autopoetic system and things like that. And so it seems to me that there should be some connection between, theoretical connection between the space of self-organizing criticality and how technical information becomes semantic information. And if you put those two together, you'd get a naturalistic account of the emergence of intelligibility as a a thing. So that's the first proposal. And then the second is given what you've got, especially when you have this ongoing complexification up and down, right? You get the idea that there's that that intelligibility in itself is almost like a living thing and it's inexhaustible, like the combinatorial explosive nature of a complexifying world. You have an inexhaustible source of intelligibility. And and, um, that's sort of the proposal for what the sacred is in that neoplatonic framework and it sounds to me like if you put the self-organizing criticality together and the work that Brandon's doing with some rr glue you get an account of what intelligibility is and you've you right and then and then you can then give an account in terms of intelligibility which is an inherently transjective phenomena right what sacredness is because sacredness also seems to be an inherently transject it goes in it's it's, it's me, but it's not. It's participatory, like you said. So what do you think of that right. proposal? I, I mean, that's a very long argument compressed, but.
2: I don't know. I don't know what to think about it, but I, I'm going to say something that might be related to it. Um, so, there, you know, this this idea of intelligibility. Um, and there is some some. Important connection between the intelligibility and the sacred. You know, when somebody, when a scientist, for example, discovers something new about the world, there is this sense of sacredness about that, right? There is yeah. some, some sense. Yeah. Um, for me, much of this is about integration. So I have a, a paper that I'm working on, but it's also uh, the seventh part of my YouTube series where I talk about the psychology of meaning and, um, and I, I think this is a lot of this is implicit in in your work, John, but I'm not sure if you've ever said it explicitly. Correct me if I'm wrong. But a lot of the work on on meaning in psychology sort of points to this idea that what the sense of of meaning is or the the subjective sense of meaning as a mood that we feel over the long run is the extent to which we are psychologically integrated. right? So we see this uh, with the coherence as being an aspect of meaning in life. Uh, um significance being an aspect of meaning in life, the extent to which we're integrated with, with uh, the external world, uh, purpose being the third, uh, the third one that's usually talked about in the literature, the okay. extent, and then you would say mattering as well, right? Yeah. And mattering, there's evidence that mattering is actually prominent among the four. Um, it, it does
1: a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, this is why you, you, if you want to know, if you can ask people, um, what do you want to exist, even if you don't? um and how much of a difference do you make to it now and if they have good answers to both of those that'll generally predict how meaningful they find their lives uh this is why you know well my kids i want my kid well and do you make a difference to your kids yes i do and that's why my kids make my life so
2: so so meaningful okay so what i would suggest is that a lot of that is pointing to this idea of, of psychological and the extent to which So there's a a really nice paper by uh, Jacob Hirsch, and Jordan Peterson was an author on that paper from 2012 called The Psychological Entropy Framework. And what they argue is that what anxiety is, what psychological, you know, anxiety is psychological entropy. Psychological entropy is the extent to which there is conflict between our behavioral affordances. So the world presents us with affordances, you know, and and to the extent that we have conflict between those options that we have, we experience anxiety, we experience psychological entropy. Well, the opposite of that would be the subjective sense of meaning over the long run, when you are psychologically integrated. So so what... uh,
1: but, I mean, it's not just a psychological sense. If it's actually involving affordances, affordances aren't subjective phenomena. That's one of yeah. their defining feature. They're inherently yeah. transjective. So what, wouldn't it be more like uh, something like the, 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 right, whatever, whatever complexification is happening here is actually coupled well to the complexification of the world? Yes. Because, you know, you have, you have all the, the, the things about nobody wants internal peace at the expense of being in contact with reality. Um, You know, you can run the simple experiment of asking people, I do this with my students, how many of you are in really satisfying romantic relationships, how many of you would want to know, even if it destroys the relationship that your partner is cheating, they almost all put up their hand because they don't want that well-being at the expense of it being fraudulent or a lie or not real. And, and, And so isn't it more about the affordance coupling
2: than just the inner state of the person? So let me just say why I would say it's subject, uh, subjective in some sense that the you have a subjective sense of meaning in life simply because you can be wrong about it. So for example, uh, your meaning in life may be tied up with your, to use your example, with your intimate relationship. And you may find out 20 years down the road that actually your spouse betrayed you and your two kids aren't really yours, right? Okay, something like that. Well, then all of that meaning in life that you had uh, it was an illusion in some sense, right? So that's okay. why I would say that that, sub, well, that sense is subjective in, in some sense, but... Right, right. So, but but then there's the distinction looming here uh, because
1: if you can be wrong, you can be right, which means there has to be something non-subjective that gives you the normative standard by which you judge that. So the meaning can't be equated to the subjective sense because there has to be something that corrects it uh, when, that sense is, when that sense is false. and And presumably it's a... Normativity that is trying to get you to track, you know, real meaning, for example.
2: Yes. Well, what I would suggest is that, you know, the meaning is not where the value is. The value is where it is in the process by which you update your meaning when it's lost, essentially. Right. So, yes, yes. Um, that goes well with the problems around coherence
1: in Heinzelman's work. So there's been a failure to replicate a few times. And I've been arguing that it's not found meaning like in pictures and the linguistic stems. But it's more like if people have an insight or they get a realization of meaning that's predictive of meaning in life. That's an experiment I actually want to run. So I think we're agreeing now. I think we're agreeing. I think you're right. When we did the the experiment on the relationship between mystical experience and meaning in life, it wasn't the phenomenological content. It was the insight factor. How much of an insight factor was there that was actually carrying that load of changing the meaning
2: in life? And so my to relate this back to what to what started this um, that process right so it's not that the meaning itself is the sacred right because that meaning can be false uh, you can be wrong about it but what i would suggest is that the process by which we update that meaning in the face of anomalies it's something like that that process is sacred yeah and yeah. Yeah, process, yeah, yeah, yeah we're in agreement right? now
1: we're in agreement now okay I, yeah the, we're, we're that, that's exactly right um, that's why I was that's why I, I try not to use the I was trying to use this sort of sense of the fount of intelligibility um, where it's that's meaning that makes sense to us and affords our agency and problem solving in some important fashion. Yeah, I think that's
2: right I think we're in complete agreement now and so that that process you know the reason why that's related to criticality is because that process when it's uh, when it's being done optimally, that's what takes place at the border between order and chaos, right that's yeah. criticality. And so that process by which we update ourselves in the face of anomalies, which we can induce, uh, we can we can induce that um, that phenomenology, at least through the flow state, through psilocybin, and, and presumably there are other methods as well. But the reason why we get that sense of the sacred under the influence of psilocybin, often people get that sense of the sacred, is because that is what's happening un, under that state, right? You are being dissolved in some, in some sense, and Uh, and reformulated right that's the uh, the rebus model essentially Uh, the rebus model of the action of psychedelics uh, relaxed beliefs under psychedelics says that psychedelics essentially flatten out the hierarchy allow prediction errors to travel to the top and knock out that stuff at the top and that that process is felt by us as being deeply meaningful and sacred and it's you know i think that is what intelligibility is in some sense i'm not i'm not sure exactly how you're using no i think that's
1: right and, and and I think I think that process you're talking about is uh, when we experience it individually and consciously. That's the insight experience, and then the flow experience is an insight cascade. And I think mystical experiences are not an insight into this problem or that problem, but into the meta problem of having an optimal grip on the world. And optimal gripping is exactly what you're talking about. Um, and and so it's gonna ha- it's gonna be like more than the flow state kind of thing. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the the thing that um, we still have to get back to is, um, and I want to propose that we leave it for next time because we've already gone quite a while, um, um, it's, I want to go back to the Trinitarian model you had there uh, because I know there's a lot of my viewers that are going to go, ooh, there's the Trinity, <laughs> uh, right? Ooh, there's the Trinity. And I'm not making fun of them. I I, I think I'm representing them uh, fairly, and I'm very sympathetic. and And because I've been sort of advancing the argument. I'm not a Christian, but I, I I tend to like Christian Neoplatonism over pagan Neoplatonism because of these kinds of moves. And so I propose that we could at least start there. We don't seem to have any problem getting into very rich and wonderful discussion. You're so juicy to talk to you, but I propose we bring this one to a close and we can start next time with, you know, what does that like? Start with it. Because it's clearly, it's explicitly in, in your in your diagram, it's a trinitarian model. Um, in some ways, it's the Father, Son, uh, yes. and the Mother, right? Right. So, let, and then what does that do with the Christian Trinity, and what does that do with the Neoplatonic Trinity? Because they're they're all over the place, right? And yeah. so, how's that for we pick it up there? I think
2: we should definitely talk about that. Yeah.
1: So I'm going to let uh, you. Uh, I'll do it in this order: Greg, uh, and then you, final word, and then we'll bring it to a close.
0: Just basically bridging off of what John said. I really love the way the concept of criticality speaks about the levels uh, of our ontology and the way in which our cognitive grip grips it, and then sets us the stage for the sort of uh, view of the Kairos of the moment, if I come back to that. So one of the things I would like to talk more about is the kind of worldview implications. You know, we're talking about transcendent naturalism, a lot of beautiful stuff about the kind of mechanisms of cognition and what does it mean about intelligibility. But also we want to sort of be also, hey, what is the worldview? And you know, I think you did a beautiful job laying out some intimations of that. For speaking for myself, and maybe this picks up on the Trinity, I'd like us to bridge into that maybe next
2: time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds good to me. So, Brett, uh, final word from you. I mean, that, that was great. Uh, I think I I learned a lot in the sense of how to communicate these things uh, properly. And and uh, of course, I've learned a, a huge amount from both of y'all. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to the next discussion. Thank you,
1: everyone, for your time and attention. We'll pick this up next time.